Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, Falling Water, perched above Bear Run in southwestern Pennsylvania, is Frank Lloyd Wright's masterpiece, a house perhaps as recognizable as any other in the United States that is not on the back of the nickel. Less known is that it was designed and built at the end of decades of despair and seeming futility in the architect's life, a series of circumstances that would have broken nearly anyone else. Falling Water, therefore, is not only an instantiation of Wright's developing philosophy of architecture, but of his near-fanatical determination to prevail against all enemies, often most notably himself. But Falling Water is also a monument to the era of the Depression, even though Falling Water seems very far removed from our mental images of what the Depression was like. With me today is Catherine W. Zipf, an award-winning architectural historian. She is Executive Director of the Bristol Historic and Preservation Society in Bristol, Rhode Island, and the author of Frank Lloyd Wright's Falling Water, which is the subject of our conversation today. Catherine Zipf, welcome to Historically Thinking. Well, thanks for having me. So this book is actually about, I, I, I try to always with books, I try to figure out what are the themes, what are the categories, what's, you know, what's, books are never about just one thing. So this is uh, about an American architectural icon. It's about the Depression and what the Depression did to architecture, uh, which is important, and what it did to the American built environment. But it's also Frank Lloyd's Frank Lloyd Wright's biography in relation to Falling Water. And one of the, as a biographical subject, what's interesting to me is how Frank Lloyd Wright had to become the kind of person who could build Falling Water. And I think we're going to focus on that uh, for the most part. Uh, There's so much interesting stuff about Falling Water. Uh, Never have I been so fascinated with the vagaries of reinforced concrete. And there's like a complete soap opera and drama of how falling water is actually constructed. But we're going to let readers discover that for themselves in the book, I think. I really want to get my head around uh, Wright himself, but also the the architectural era of which he came from and which he then in turn created, question mark, uh, if he did. Um, I, I'm I'm still... My, my mind is still out on that one. So let's begin with um, at the beginning of uh, a series of unfortunate events that Lemony Snicket would even raise their eyebrows at. Um, it's is what, 1908, 1909? Who is Frank Lloyd Wright, say, in 1906, 1908? Well, he's a uh, reasonably young architect um, who has built a wildly successful career in Oak Park, Chicago. He has uh, plenty of clients. Um, He's developed his own architectural style. I mean, in many ways, he's achieved the architect's dream. He can support himself off his architecture. He runs his own firm. Um, And he's got lots of clients. So he's really, in in a lot of ways, he's at the top of his game. And um, at his age, um, I mean, he wasn't like a teenager, <laughs> but he had. A, how, how, how old is he by that time? Oh goodness, you're going to make me add it up. Um, I'm sorry. A, no, I'm sorry. I, I never ask up. a historian about <laughs> dates. <laughs> I brought but it I, up. But I, he's, I mean, in I, he's in his forties. Yeah, he's in his forties. Yeah, he's because um, he does. He dies in 1959 when he's approximately 185. 
So he, <laughs> right. I mean, one of the thing about his is his the productivity of his career over such a span of time. He does not. He is not a man for retiring in any definition of the word retiring. That's correct. And he's um, so. I mean, the funny thing about Frank Lloyd Wright is he actually was born in 1867, but he lied about his age. He said he was born in 1869. So uh, right. a little confusion on the part of the historians is is uh, is reasonable. Um, but he would have been about 40. And that's really what he had achieved by then was really quite an accomplishment for a 40-year-old. Um, he'd done, uh, to put that in the context that you just said, he'd done about a third of the buildings that he would do in the first part of his career. His Oak Park years are um, pretty pretty prolific, and he produces quite a body of knowledge. So what has he, he ha- he's produced a lot of buildings, um, but he's also created a new style and philosophy of architecture which you know not many people not many architects even the most successful architects aren't able to do that by the, that by that by any age uh, in their life so what what style has he created well he's uh, what's crea- he done he's created something that uh in in retrospect we call the prairie style but he called it some other things and probably just leave it <laughs> semantics but um and the style itself is characterized by uh long low roof lines um, single-story buildings, um, uh, cantilevered roofs. He was very right from the start. He was pretty inventive in structure, and then he did. Um, he he's, he gets credit for what is often called breaking the box. If you think about Victorian houses, um, they are lots of little rooms, and he was particularly interested in wide open spaces. So what he would do is put the chimney. He would often, not always. He's really, I think, he's an architect that's difficult to pin down on what he does. Um, <clears throat> but he has a chimney in the center and then he'll kind of pinwheel the, the rooms around it so that there's, so that space flows from, from one room into the next. Um, and that was a very different way of living. And that's part of his philosophy, right? The, the initial philosophy is that architecture should support how you're going to live. And that's what will get developed over time. But the seeds of it are there in Oak Park. Two other things about him, which are important, very important for the succeeding conversation. I, I said that he, um, I mentioned the role of reinforced concrete in this story. His degree from the University of Wisconsin is not in architecture. In fact, he probably couldn't get an architecture degree when he graduated from, probably couldn't get it anywhere in America in, what would that be, 1887, 89. Um, But it's in civil engineering. So he knows a lot about, he is an experimentalist when it comes to structure and structural techniques. This is almost a history of technology story. In many ways, frankly, right. It is, and and to to clarify, he he actually didn't make it through college. Um, okay, well, all right, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, um, mm. but at the time, he didn't have to. Um, uh, yeah, right. So you're you're correct that he studies for um, it's really only probably about a year, and the person he studies with is indeed a civil engineer. So that is his first training, and I, I think the way to look at it is that classroom learning is really not right for him. Um, he had an innate understanding of structure. Um, well, he apprenticed. And as an architect, yeah. you could do that in the, in the late um, 1900s. That was a, a perfectly valid way of, of mm-hmm. you know, Thomas Jefferson didn't have an architecture degree. Um, it can be white. Didn't, I mean, lots. Every, pro- every profession is, is taught that way. Right. Uh, from um, law to medicine to architecture. Right. And so he, he apprentices. Um, his, his, uncle, his uncle gets him the job. Um, and he apprentices, but he does, and you're correct that he's a life, he's got a lifelong interest in technology, but he's also got an innate talent for understanding how it would work. 
right? He just, he just in his head, he's like, oh, I see this, this will work. Um, and over time, he was highly experimental with technology. I'm sure we'll get to that part of the conversation because that does figure in. Um, and he, um, he's willing to take risks and he's highly knowledgeable. He reads a ton. So he's not really schooled per se in like, you know, sitting in a classroom, but he's highly educated. Yeah. And he's got all the, the assets and abilities and deficits of the self that autodidact. Um, you know, that you can see them again and again in his, in his life. He also should say he's from Southwest Wisconsin. I think he's from the Driftless region. I mean, and that's an important part of his identity. And, and there's a way we associate with Oak Park in Chicago and sort of what's now a built environment, a, a very built up environment. But in his head, he's always seeing the country. I think. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I mean, he, you know, architects, and, and this is something that is, I think, thematic through the book. And it's it's one of the, the interests that I have in general, when I when I embark on a project like this, um, I'm, I'm always particularly interested in how do you do it? And, you know, Chicago, especially in the wake of the Chicago fire, Chicago is, is it's not just that it's a booming town with all of the industry and all of the um, uh, uh, I mean, Chicago is the linchpin for the West. So everything that's coming from the West, uh, be that cattle production or, or, um, or, uh, uh, crops like corn and, and wheat and such are all coming through Chicago. So Chicago is booming. Literally, it's building. And, and that's where he goes because that's where there's work. Um, there isn't really work in Wisconsin and certainly not in his part of Wisconsin, although there will be because he'll do it. Mm-hmm. So what, changes from this successful, very successful architect? How does his life begin to change? Well, in 1908, he rather famously ran away with the wife of a client. Um, And uh, when you read her name, it looks like Mama, but is in fact Mama, Um, Mama Cheney. Uh, And, you know, it's a tough moment, I think, to understand. You know, he really in you know, I think to a lot of people, he sort of throws it all away. Um, and he, he does. And, and the other thing that's often said about him is he, well, he ran off in the middle of the night with a, and it's not really true. He actually planned very carefully. Um, he does. Yeah, maybe it would be better if he had, <laughs> it might have been it's, better. it's much, it's much more cold blooded than that. I mean, okay. we should say he's got a, a wife of, of many years by that time and, and a pile of kids. Um, he enjoys having kids apparently. Yeah. He had six children with his first wife, Catherine. And, um, you know, and I think to understand this moment, you, uh, have to really think very carefully about, um, things like, and, and for those of us of a, of a, of a certain middle age, some of this might resonate. Um, I think he's just, it's a little bit of a midlife crisis, but I think he is deeply unhappy. I think, you know, I think it's that, that sort of twisted, like he loves his wife and he loves his family, but Mama inspires something in him artistically. And it's just much of a, of a, more of a a meeting of spirits. Um, She is his muse. And um, I think he just can't let that go. And then on top of that, um, I think he has a real, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to say this about somebody who's so accomplished, but he has a really deep, um, you know, sort of ennui is the right word. I think um, he's bored. He's kind of professionally bored. He's accomplished all these things and he's still a young man and he has other things that he wants to do. And I think he really has larger ambitions beyond houses, which is largely what he's doing in Oak Park. Um, and so he, he does this and, and you're right. It's, it's more cold and calculating than, I think most people think about, he does dispose of his office. He, he wraps, he, he assigns 
people to projects. He doesn't leave anything hanging. Um, and he knows full well when he leaves that his career is going to take a hit. But he, they, they, so they, the, uh, what they do is they, they run off to Europe, um, where he has been invited to prepare a book, um, on his portfolio. It's called the Wasmuth's portfolio. And that's what they're doing in Europe. And they're, you know, spending time together and they're doing this new project. And, um, I think it's really the first inclination of something that's super important for Wright, which is this idea of architecture is more than building buildings. And this Wasmuth's portfolio is the first inclination where he can understand how he can explore architectural ideas without actually designing buildings. And that will become a theme of the next 20 years. I mean, there's, uh, I linked to it in the show notes. I mean, I remember from the 90s, there was a great exhibit at the Library of Congress of all of the magnificent illustrations, drawings, plans of things that were never built. This is the next 20 years of his life. I think in some ways he finds very productive, but they, looking from the outside, to me at least, they seem kind of sad and sterile that so many brilliant things never got even close to having the concrete poured for the footer. Yeah. I mean, so we're, we're moving into the middle third of his career, which is arguably, yeah. um, <clears throat> I mean, I think you have to think about what defines productivity, right? Does he build mm-hmm. much? No, <laughs> he does mm-hmm. not build very much at all. Certainly relative to the first third and arguably what will be the last third of his life, um, he does not build much in in these middle years, but it is highly experimental. And again, I think it speaks to what he's missing in this early part of his career. He he doesn't really. I mean, it's it's like okay, here's another. And I hate to see to make it sound banal because it's not. Again, it's many cases. It's every architect's dream what he's living. But I think for him, it's like okay, here we have another uh, certain type of you know Midwestern client. They want a certain type of house, and you know I'll sort of do this again and again and again. And I think that's really where the ennui came in. Like it's 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 a little bit of lather, rinse, repeat. Here's another client. Oh. Here's another house. Here's another client. Here's another house. When it get let me get back to that in just a second. But one thing that really strikes me, really admirable, is how he complete continues to think and develop, and read and reflect for those years of sterility and, and dryness in ways that, you know, we're going to say that this is, <laughs> there's a lot of damage that goes on in this period, uh, psychically, emotionally, um, you know, mentally. Um, and yet he continues to develop. I mean, just to, I know a, a fellow who's been on the podcast, he had a, from what looked like from the outside, a sort of a, a sterile period of his life for decades. Turns out he was writing books the entire time, just putting them in the drawer. And so lately he's been publishing a lot. Uh, he, and what, so I admired him greatly and Wright is the same way. They, neither of them ever stopped thinking, even though they were like, as it were, making things as the Soviet distance used to say, they're writing for the drawer. Right in many ways is writing for the drawer, but he doesn't stop writing. He doesn't stop writing and, and really, you know, of course, designing, right? He is thinking about a lot yeah. of things during this middle period. And what's, sort of really fascinating about that is all of those things really come together in falling water, right? He's thinking about concrete. He's thinking about how it's going to work. He's certainly thinking about modernism. Um, he is thinking about nature. He's thinking about life. How do you live in a building? He's thinking about all of these things. And I thought, you know, to me, because this book was as, as much of a surprise to me as I think it, it is to, to readers, um, to just put falling water in this context, it really was like, wow, look at the breadcrumbs and how they come together, right? Mm-hmm. He's, it's actually not the first house he designs over a waterfall. It's, it's like the good fourth or fifth. And okay. a lot of these ideas that he's working on in the twenties 
are ones that he ultimately does find opportunity for. The Guggenheim is another one where that design does not come out of thin air. He's working on those ideas all throughout the 20s. So, you know, again, it's a very fertile period for him uh, as a development perspective and, and really a working through of a lot of ideas, which doesn't always go well. <laughs> One thing. But they do all come to, together. So we've, we've set forward, I was given their sort of panorama of what we'll be talking about. One other thing is this behavior that lots of people, it's not my, just my um, perception, but what lots of his friends were, if he had friends, uh, close observers uh, saw as self-destructive. There is a way in which he's me at four years old, just knocking over the complete town of blocks in order to start over. I mean, he does that with drawings, with projects. He does that with his life sometimes. Though there is a way where he get, does get bored with his toy, by right, the way things are, and then just like knocks it down and starts over again. Yeah, which is one of the in, the first, I think, uh, signs of something that a quality that is within him that is is i think vital to his to his life and how it how it how it um, plays out which is his resilience i mean mm -hmm. this man gets and and I'm, I'm sure we'll get there i'll let you ask a question but this man gets kicked in the teeth multiple times and i think in just brutal ways well let's go to the the one of the most brutal acts uh events of his life um and like a lot of them they are a um there's a one followed by a zero. There's a yin followed by a yang. So he he and, and Mayma set up this he he comes up with his first it's not really his first masterpiece, but I think it's his own his own his own feeling. This is his first he's free to create what he wants to create for himself. He does it in his beloved southwestern Wisconsin. Uh, and, uh, and it's on a, a piece of land that he adores that's been a part of his life. Uh, since he was a child and describe that and then describe the, the, what comes afterwards. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm going to back up just a smidgen to, to pick up from Europe because he and Mayma know sure. they're going to have to come. They're going to have to come back and face the music. And so yeah. they do that and they return to Chicago, but uh, not surprisingly, Chicago is a pretty unfriendly place. Um, what they've done has been splashed all over the papers and it is difficult for Wright to, to get clients. Um, it is difficult. She is married. So, you know, things are, she has two children. So it's difficult with his wife. It's difficult with her husband. And so what they do is they retreat to Wisconsin. That's a deliberate um, kind of stepping backward from Chicago. Uh, they move on to land that has long been part of the family. Um, Wright's mother secures it for them. And they uh, go back there and Wright builds what is going to be arguably the most important place of his life, which is Taliesin. Um, and it's the proverbial, you know, uh, architect as his own client. So he gets to do whatever he wants to do. And it turns out, so Taliesin, I mean, there's really a Taliesin 1, a Taliesin 2, a Taliesin 3. I mean, it's it's a little bit like um, <clears throat> Thomas. It's like Monticello 1 and yeah, 2 and, and 3. three I mean, right. It's, it's, <clears throat> when you're when you are your own client, you tend to tear down a lot. Yes. Um, and so he would perpetually build and rebuild and rebuild. And it's also a crucible, though, for his experiments, right? Um, let's, you know, the things that you, that ultimately a client is not necessarily going to let you like, all right, yeah, let's see what that looks like. And then we'll tear it down and actually build it. Like, no, 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 it's not going to work. Yeah. Um, but he gets to do that out at Taliesin and it becomes his home base. Um, and so he, he is, again, after they return, um, he, he knows it'll be hard after he leaves and he's managing to kind of turn the wheels a little bit. He gets a few clients, um, a few people in his life stand by him. Um, they help him get some clients. Um, 
And one of his big commissions is Midway Gardens. And then uh, in 1914, um, one of the servants that he has hired, I, I, just, the best way to describe it is he just kind of goes nuts, right is away on the Midway Gardens site at the time. And this servant um, murders Mama, murders her children, murders a few other people in the household and burns the place to the ground. And it is I mean, let's just put it, I mean, devastating. Like, it's an axe murder. It's an axe I mean, murder. He sets, fire, he sets fire to the house and then attacks people as they come out of the house with an axe. Absolutely. Right? I mean, it's- and, and, then drinks, and then drinks acid in order to commit suicide, which doesn't succeed. And he dies terribly. It's an awful story. All of it is awful. Now, yeah. It's so awful. Yeah, all uh, of it is awful. And and then, so, I mean, it's really terrible. And uh, there's a book in my bibliography that actually does the play-by-play of that. Yeah. Um, we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, I'll, I'll get it to you. Um, there's the name of it does escape me at the moment. Um, yeah, it's really awful. And then, of course, the papers, you know, they lump it on like, oh, well, you know, you ran off with your wife's, the wife of your, you left your wife and your six children. So so this is what you deserved, right? Like, it's really, all of it is just horrible. Um Wright gets the news when he is on the building site at uh, Midway Gardens, which is in Chicago. He's not at home at the time. Um, and he, you know, rides back on the train with Mama's husband. Um, <laughs> imagine what that's like, right? And they, they go to Taliesin and he buries her in a local cemetery. Um, her her, her uh, former husband takes the children bodies back with him to Chicago. And I mean, it's just devastating. I mean, it's, and, and I, I think this is the, and I think it's a moment where, you know, God, anybody else would have just leaped off the nearest bridge. Um, but Wright does not. Uh, he he knows, he's kicked in the teeth without a doubt, and he definitely retreats. Um, but he finds life again in work. And so really what he does is he starts working. And I think this is, again, where he starts to figure out, I can work. Like work is sometimes defined as something other than building buildings. So let's talk about Midway Gardens, because that seems to be in, in a really important project for him. Is this his first opportunity to build a big non-house project? Or I don't, I don't know what to call it. I, yeah, it's not a house. It's a, <laughs> it's a beer garden. Uh, not, I mean, I, it's a beer garden. Yep. I mean, it's a and it's a very uh, it, it's funny because I was thinking about how culturally this place will just completely be gutted by um, by prohibition. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's 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 at the last possible moment where you can build a a really architectural, interesting beer and amusement garden. But um, he he has a chance to do something new and innovative, which. Uh, which it relates to a lot of the things that he'll do in the future. What, what, so what is, how does that work? So Midway Gardens is a beer garden. Um, and that, it, it, for those of us who don't know what a beer garden is, because I didn't really, um, uh, it's really a little bit of a kind of a combination restaurant, theater, music venue. Uh, and it's outdoors. Most of it is outdoors. So there are some indoor parts of it because it is Chicago and it's cold in the winter. Um, and so there's a, an indoor dining area, but the, the, the real, the heart of it is this outdoor, um, you want to think multi-level, um, entertainment venue. So, um, because nothing really comes to mind as an example, but there's a stage on one end and then there's sort of a, a level area and then sort of, um, I mean, patios above I it. Say, and every Midwestern tough. town of any size at the time has at least one beer garden. Yes. Uh, where the Germans after church go and they drink beer as a family. 
And then they listen to, I don't know, Strauss, Schubert. They listen. This is how a lot of, actually, a lot of American orchestras began. I think, uh, I think even if they began as German sort of, uh, beer garden festival orchestras. I mean, it's not all oompa bands. They're, they're, they're playing stuff. So it's a, it's a, it's a cultural form that completely is destroyed by both the First World War, Germans, and by Methodists in, at least in 1919. Yeah, that's, 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 that, there you go, right? That's, and, and so he really, what's unique about Midway Gardens is that Wright gets to put a right spin on it. Mm-hmm. So it has a very Wrightian feel to it. It's got the long, low lines, um, emphasis on uh, materials, um, you know, just sort of flowing space through it. And uh, the decoration is, is key. I mean, he really pulls it together and he's quite difficult. He's quite difficult and hard to work with for his, for his artisans. Um, he's, he's got high exacting standards. And so it's not the easiest of commissions, but, you know, think paintings and sculpture and um, flowing space and architecture all working as a single, a single unit to create this space. And he, uh, he's experimenting with technology also at this time. As always. always. So is this, is this, he's always, is this, he's already a fan of the gutterless flat roof, which physics says is a bad idea, but, uh, he loves them because they're clean. Yeah. Uh, and he's also playing around with, uh, reinforced cr- concrete and also early air conditioning systems. Yeah. He's playing around with all of that. And, uh, you know, Midway Gardens was a success architecturally. It does come down in his lifetime. It's one of the last things that, that happens before the, it, had, in, it happens in 1929, right before, um, <clears throat> right before the stock market crashes. Um, so it does come down in his lifetime, but it's, 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 uh, it's obsolescence is entirely about its function, not about mm. its, its architecture. Um, right, right. You know, there's some really quite stunning pictures of it. So um, almost immediately, um, he, he, Wright has to have a muse. And his next muse is Miriam Knoll. Could you describe her briefly? And then, and then we can move to Japan of all places. Yeah. Uh, so in the wake of this uh, real catastrophe in Wright's life, um, Miriam writes to him. Now, she is one of many people who write to him. And of course, not all the letters are nice. Um, and not all of them are unnice either. She, but there's something about her letter that strikes right. Um, and he asks to meet her and they kindle up a relationship. Um, he thinks she will be his next Mama. Um, and what turns out to happen is that she is, I mean, it's a little hard to tell whether you really want to describe her as mentally ill or just plain crazy, but let's just say she's got some issues and it's, it's a fraught relationship right from the start. I don't, one of the questions, you know, sort of if I ever had a chance to talk to Wright, like, what would I, why did you stay with her, dude? Like, <laughs> um, but he does. And uh, they really, they try very hard to make it work. And anyway, she is just, you know, he's, he's a pretty volatile guy, but she's even more volatile. And uh, it just, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't help things. Let's put it that way. So he's in the, uh, he's probably, is he already rebuilding Taliesin? Yes. Um, yes. He's, so he's rebuilding Taliesin and he has, um, so there's, there's a number of sort of small things that he's trying to get going at this, uh, at this time. Um, some of them are sort of, you know, colossal failures. The, uh, American system built, um, houses are one. He had this idea for, again, he's very forward thinking. You don't think about this for right, yeah. but he had an idea for a standardized architectural, um, sort of houses by mail, sort of a la Sears idea. Um, 
And he designs. I mean, it's, it's actually in the archives. The American system built housing is the largest number of drawings. Um, so, I mean, it's just, but he doesn't, he builds very little. I think there's like, well, there's uh, every now and then they find one, but there's six that are really kind of well known. And it's like the, the war as it, as it hurts Midway Gardens. Yeah. It also hurts the American, the American system. And it's yet another idea that he kind of play, continues to play with and then resurrects later, decades later, you know, uh, with the Sony, the Usonian houses. Yeah. I uh, have a ref- reflect back to that. They do. Um, they do. But- yeah. And I was going to, so I was going to say, so, um, so he's got the American system built, uh, houses on his, uh, on his, on his desk. Um, but he also has two other really large clients. Um, one is the Imperial Hotel in Japan. Um, and that, that, so how that comes to him, well, you can, you can read about it in the book, but he, he gets that commission and it's terribly, terribly slow. It is years before like he gets permission to move ahead it's years before construction starts the construction itself lasts for years i mean it is this long project um and the other and he, is the project and he has on, to go over there he does, all the time all the time i mean because even in the age of zoom frankly would write would be breathing down a contractor's neck um <laughs> yeah he is he's a micromanager and has no tolerance for nonsense and everyone's always doing nonsense yes uh, yeah, it's never up to his standards. Um, and, you know, he absolutely watches you like a hawk. And, and that's true. There's evidence right from the start. Back, even when he was a young architect, he would go on the building site and say, you're doing it wrong. Um, yeah. And the, so the other project, he's got this this project in Japan, which he's back and forth for. And just to remind listeners, um, back and forth means a steamship. <laughs> so, you know, and you're there for months. Um, and, and that wreaks havoc with the other client, which is Aileen Barnstall and um, the project for Olive Hill, which today is Hollyhock House. Um, and Aileen in Los Angeles, um, and Aileen is another one. She's just a piece of work as a client. And the real problem with Aileen is that she just doesn't, she can't ever really settle on what it is she wants to do. So she says, first she says, I want to do a theater, right? And then she says, well, I want to do, you know, I want to do a theater in shops and now it's a house because I've had a baby. And it's just like, poor right. Like he can just never keep up with her changing needs. Plus he's back and forth. He's, he's juggling Taliesin and Los Angeles and uh, Japan. And so he's really not ever really like nobody's really kind of getting his full attention. Um, and so he spent and then there's Miriam. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there's it's Miriam. yeah, so it's just this all this up and down. It's just I crazy. thought as I as I read this, I was thinking in the writing the margin that LA was the perfect in the 20s is the perfect place for Frank Lloyd Wright. I mean, he likes the desert, as we'll see. I mean, he eventually he'll move to Tal- Taliesin West is like Phoenix. Um, and, but LA is even better. I mean, it's got, this is 1920s. We've got the oil wells are gushing throughout the LA basin. We've got the aircraft industry. It's modern. It's forward. It's streamlined. We've got movies and their flamboyance of Hollywood and Frank Lloyd Wright, as we'll talk about. He's Mr. Flamboyant. I mean, this is the place. You would think that, like Brigham Young, he would say that and settle down in the Los Angeles basin and and just stay. But it's interesting. He is still like like a lot of other Midwesterners at the time uh, that he might have done that. But he the, he still has a draw to Wisconsin and and even to maybe Chicagoland, which never quite goes away. I I I can't quite work this out. Yeah, so you, you're right. I mean, why doesn't it work for him in Los Angeles? And I, it's an excellent question. Arguably, 
he does the same thing for Chicago, right? Here he is a young man and he goes to the place where they're building. Um, here he is a, a okay, less of a young man, <laughs> goes to a place where they're building. And Los Angeles is booming in the 20s. It is booming. Sure. Um, yeah. And I think I read something like, you know, um, uh, house every 20 minutes, house is completed every 20 minutes in, in Los Angeles. I mean, it's just, it, it's crazy, crazy booming. Um, and you would think there would be work for right there. Um, but he... Um, I think he struggles with a number of things. One of them really is the geographic challenge of managing a project in Japan, a home in Wisconsin, and the projects uh, in Los Angeles. He opens an office in Los Angeles as part of the when, – when Barnstall calls him um, – and Barnstall is also there, by the way, because Los Angeles is booming. Um, and she's, she does theater and she thinks, you know, Los Angeles, she, she also moves from Chicago to Los Angeles, thinking that Los Angeles is, is, is the new Chicago, I guess. Um, <laughs> which I'm sure both Chicagans and Los Angelinos would say is not the case. <laughs> um, but anyway, so, so everybody's in Los Angeles and, um, uh, they think it's the new frontier, but, um, Wright really cannot juggle these things geographically. So he, he starts it off, he opens an office and he puts, um, he, he has his son there, um, and he has Rudolf Schindler there. Um, and again, it's just, I think it's that, um, I mean, goodness, you think if he could trust anybody with a building, it's his son, but no, um, things don't really just, just don't go the way that they're supposed to go. Um, so I think some of this is, the real geographic challenges of managing these three projects. And he's never going to give up Taliesin. Like that really is his home. But there are other factors as well, right? So what is being built in the 1920s and particularly in Los Angeles is a lot of revival style architecture. And if you think about this, um, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I love to watch when something becomes available for sale in Los Angeles, like something big, like so-and-so's house, right? Um, and if it's an old sort of 1920s era, it's old for Los Angeles, right? Um, 1920s era house, it's usually something super fun, like, um, like a Tudor revival, authentic, you know, uh, or a Spanish revival with the tile roofs or, you know, and that's what they're yeah. building, Georgian revival. That's what they're building, like San Simeon. And if there's is, anything that would turn Frank Lloyd Wright into an arsonist. Oh, God, it's all it's that. revival revival architecture. And this is a guy who basically just decided that the worst thing in the world was the classical revival inspired by the 1893 Chicago World's Fair, um, you give an anecdote of how he marches into the Oval Office and says to FDR, Frank, they're building ionic columns through your city, Frank. Um, the thing that obviously classical revival, revival anything inspires him to madness. Absolutely. And, and can you just, can we just take a minute and talk about that anecdote for a second? Because oh, that's like, that yeah, it's a great anecdote, right? Frank Lloyd Wright calling Franklin Roosevelt, Frank, right? It's one Frank yeah, to another. <laughs> that's, the, that's the last time that ever happened. Right. And, and what he actually says, I mean, this is the more poignant part of this. What he actually says is, Franklin, you should stand up and do something about it. And of course, Franklin oh, Roosevelt dear. cannot stand up. So, I mean, it did, you know, that's, we get a lot of, it's another question that I usually get um, is how come Wright didn't get more New Deal work? Well, <laughs> That's why, um, amongst other reasons. But yeah, but to, to, to go back to the 20s, I mean, he is really, um, so, you know, he's, it's just, it's the clients do not, most of the clients are looking for something different than what he's going to provide. And he's not a young man anymore. So he's not so willing to give them, just give them what he wants. I think if this, if he'd been younger, I think he would have said, you know, all right, let me, let me just give them what they want. But he does not want to do that. Um, that is why he burned up Oak Park, right? Like, well, not literally, but just, you know, that's why he, he blitzed the early part of his career is he didn't want to do that. He doesn't want to just give the client what they want. He wants to do something different. Um, 
he is definitely not there to get the work. And his son calls him out on that and says, why didn't it work for you in Los Angeles? Well, it's because you weren't here to get the work. But I think um, really what he is designing, and he has, in addition to Hollyock House, he has four other houses that he's he's built um, during the time. And they are, oh gosh, they're an acquired taste um, is, a, is a nice way to put it. Um, so he, after he finally works things out with Aileen Barnstall and they figure out what they're going to do and they, they build Hollyhock House. And, and Hollyhock House is beautiful. I mean, well worth a trip. Um, but he gets, uh, he, he starts to experiment with a different um, technical system which he calls his textile blocks. And they are concrete. It's concrete block technology, except, you know, I know immediately listeners are pulling up the, the concrete, the typical concrete masonry unit, uh, you know, the, the big block with the holes in it. Um, that's not what he's doing. What he does is a brick that is a little bit more like 15 by 15 and about maybe uh, four to five, six inches thick. So it's really more of a large square. And what he does is he, he, he so you're going to, um, and he, and he creates a pattern to go on the square. So that's the, the weaving part, right? He patterns the block and then he stacks the block up. And what you're going to do is you're going to run rebar behind it. Iron, iron is rods are going to go behind it, both up and down and, uh, and hard and back and forth. And so this is where he means like a textile block. He's weaving the blocks together. So you've got this really ugly backside. Oh, so it's you're like gonna, a trick. Uh, what's it? I've used a block like that to build. A, I mean, there's people have played around with that ever since. Yes. Uh, some sort of thing like that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh. so, so uh, imagine, right? So you, what you've got is these uh, concrete blocks that are they're textured. They're, there's there's um, images on them, and they repeat. So it's a tessellated pattern, um, and then they're woven together. So on the backside, you've got uh, this rebar, which is sort of concreted in, and then um, you'll have another width of that, but facing the other way to face the interior. So there'll be a little bit of a space in between your concrete blocks, your concrete walls, right? Okay. Um, so it's a neat idea. Uh, very innovative, and it absolutely requires the right client. And he finds four of those clients um, in Los Angeles. And so uh, those are, um, so he's got a little set going. And this is really what he thinks he's going to develop into the next great thing. Um, but Okay, so they're they're because it's supposed to be. I mean, just like it's supposed to be inexpensive. It it's is yes. concrete, um, yeah. and it's it's hell for strong yeah. as a system. Um, it's wonderful and it's decorative, but I guess therein lies the decorative. I think therein lies the problem. Right. So all along, I mean, we mentioned the American System Build uh, uh, project that he does, and I arguably uh, it's true for the Usonian houses too. Right. Right. Really wants to create something inexpensive that can can bring good architecture to the masses, and this is his next wave of that. And the Usonian will get a little closer. I mean, he gets a little closer each time, but every single time, I think he really kind of pulls the rug out from under himself by wanting to make it more than what it is, right? I mean, ultimately, if you're going to have an affordable utilitarian house, and he's, again, these are ideas he's playing with even back in Oak Park, um, you you have to really cut back on some of the frills. And so again, a concrete block house, like this sounds great. Like the idea is fabulous. Um, you're going to design a mold and the homeowner is going to use um, use their own skills, right? Concrete, casting concrete block in the 1920s is actually something you could do yourself. Um, 
and uh, you'll use uh, materials from your site and a few other things, right? But it, it, and so you'll you'll wrap your sure. own nature. Already, we see if things are getting more elaborate. Yep. you have to use materials from your site, yeah. so that it reflects the earth. Yep, this is you know. Yep, and, yep. So, know, so that terroir. I, yeah, so that ideally the concrete will be the same color as the earth. Right, mm-hmm. is really what it is. But there are other materials. Like I don't, you know, I don't want anybody to go think they can make concrete out of their backyard. Um, <laughs> and so he, he, so he puts all this together, right? Um, so initially, there's 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 sort of some some merit here to this idea, but what he'll do is the next thing he'll do is he'll realize oh this textile pattern this is where he gets in his own way right the textile pattern is going to have to be able to wrap around walls and over corners and so you don't need just the full block you need the half block and you need if you've got an asymmetrical design on the tile you need both halves then you're going to need the top half and the bottom half, and then you're going to need each of the corners, and then you're going to need the piece that wraps around, and then you're going to need the corner piece. And so his first- Catherine, you must have, there must be reams of drawings <laughs> <Yes>. of him <laughs> puzzling this out in the right papers. Absolutely. And so for the Millard house, which is one of these concrete block houses, and arguably it's the best, um, he had some 77 different blocks. Right? This is not cost effective. <laughs> this is not cost effective. Um, and it's beautiful. I mean, when you go, if you go look at the Millard House, which is in Pasadena, um, I was, uh, so along the way of this project, I was fortunate to just get a chance to see lots and lots and lots of right buildings. Um, you can see the best way to see the Millard House is actually from the back. And what you're looking at as you're kind of looking through, there's a gate and you're looking through the gate down into, there was a pond and then the back side of the house, the front side of the house, you can see from, from the other side. That's, it's one of those lots that goes all the way through. So street on one side, street on the back side. Anyway, and I'm standing in front of this gate and I'm looking at the gate, which of course is textile blocks. And that is the perfect moment where he has taken the textile pattern right at the top of the pillar and wrapped it around the corner. And I was just looking at it. I mean, it's a work of art. It is just gorgeous. But oh my God, <laughs> he just, he couldn't just cap it with a, a piece of a plane. He couldn't, but he couldn't, he couldn't, he just couldn't. Um, but the the resulting buildings are, um, this is, is really an acquired taste as far as aesthetics to live in these buildings, I think. Um, I've been in uh, one or two of them. I've just been fortunate enough to be in one or two of them. And they are they're just, they're, they're weird. I mean, they're really weird. It's a weird aesthetic to live in. Some of the clients loved it. The, the Freemans loved their, their concrete block house, um, which is really cool because it's perched up on a hill and it looks out over, um, the Chinese theater. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I think you probably have a lot of good view of the action, um, come, you know, and then the walk of fame is again, down the, down the road there, but, um, it's weird. And, for those who really want a sense of these buildings, um, one of the best places to see what these buildings are like is to watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer because Angel's Lair is the Ennis house. Um, inevitably, these houses always land as the evil, the evil domain. Yeah. Um, it's the uh, it's the Noel Sinclair, the Nazi spy and the Rocketeer, one of my favorite yeah. uh, uh, sort of forgotten movies. He lives in the which one of those houses? The Mayan, the Mayan house. Yeah, the, the, right. the Ennis house. The Ennis house is, the Ennis is, house. is, is often the uh, the others are are well, the uh, Freeman house is owned by the University of Southern California. Um, but the other two are privately owned. And the Freeman House really, uh, he again, talk about experimental. He did a few things uh, for the Freeman House that he really shouldn't have done. Like, oh, I don't know, not put a foundation in. So the University of Southern California, is, there's a whole book about about restoring that house. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and, then, and then in addition, there are acquired tastes and they get bad reviews. Oh, goodness. And so, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the I mean, reviews are the two twenties. The reviews are are just awful. I mean, Wright has really never actually gotten great reviews, but they are just brutal in the twenties. The Imperial Hotel finally opens to a whole lot of like, yeah, meh from the critics, right? They just he thought it was going to launch him, and it doesn't. Midway Gardens is going to launch him. Right. Right before the Tokyo Great Tokyo Earthquake at what twenty three twenty four yeah the um, yeah, the, the, so the building isn't open very for very long the reviews have come out and then the earthquake hits and uh, you know he tries he really works hard at parlaying the Imperial Hotel into something the uh, hotel comes through the her- the earthquake um, and he is quick to take credit for the engineering that that arguably most scholars that I read say well that was a little bit of a happy accident um, but he's quick to say look at my engineering. And again, there's there's interesting engineering behind the Imperial Hotel as well, and it certainly contributed to its survival. Uh, that is another building that, by the way, has also been knocked down. Um, mm-hmm. So these these this period of his work is is difficult to see. And we can't. I mean, it's hard to overemphasize how far Tokyo is away from places in 1924. If you're building a, a building to drum up further, you know, uh, business, don't build it in Tokyo in the 20s. Yeah, yeah. New York. Los Angeles, nice. I mean, even Los Angeles is out of the way. But to be to be honest, it's it's on its way, but it's still very far away from the center of gravity in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. And when we're talking about you know Tokyo before World War II, so we're talking about a, a really rural, traditional Japan. Uh, Wright loved it. I mean, he loved going mm-hmm. to Japan, and it and bought way, a lot of art. And he and bought a lot of art. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, meanwhile. Uh, things have further deteriorated with Miriam. Yeah. And Wright has met Olga Ivanovna Lazovich Melanov, uh, who is his final muse. I mean, the ultimate muse in many ways. And so we have once again a kind of a repeat of the escape that of with that had gone on with Mema, uh, comes an escape with Olga Ivana. And Fleeing back and forth to avoid the, I don't know, maybe the detectives that uh, Miriam has hired to track him down and serve him with writs or, you know, something like that. Yeah. Uh, so he, so right ultimately he abandons Los Angeles because it isn't, he just kind of, you know, has the final, final, like this is just isn't going to work. And he abandons Los Angeles and moves with Miriam back to Taliesin, which is supposed to help. Um, and it doesn't. Um, and so finally, uh, Miriam leaves. Um, and, uh, right, sort of, they, right, let things stabilize a little bit for right when he meets, um, Olgavana. And, uh, she, they meet at a, a, a performance, um, and it's, li- it's literally like kismet, right? Like, uh, the two of them, they, they're seated next to each other. They hit it off. They, you know, they, they go from the performance to lunch to dinner to moving in, <laughs> right? Like it's, it's just that quick. Um, it's a, it's a meeting of the minds. But of course, he is actually, he, he is, um, married to Miriam. <laughs> so all of this is once again, here we go behind the wife's back. His first wife is, is had in the 1920s, his first wife had finally given him the divorce. Um, and, um, he is able to marry Miriam. Uh, he never marries Mema because he was still divo- he was still married to to his first wife at the time. So that's so they're happily living in sin. Um, but uh, finally um, meets Olgavana, and 
um, Miriam, because again, it's illegal. So, and Miriam really, she's just a head case. I mean, she really, she, so first thing she does is leak all of these letters to the press. Um, and what they're doing is actually, it, technically, there's a law that says you can't bring someone over a state line, um, for the intention of, of sex. That's, that's a, a law. Um, and technically, right. And Olgavana are violating it when they, she, she forces them, the press just hounds them, forces them to flee, tell yes, and they go to Minnesota, aha, over the state line, right? Now it's, <laughs> now it's illegal. In Minnesota, they spend a night in jail. Um, and Miriam continues to pursue them. And eventually they're going to drive. And I, I actually think the driving part's really kind of fundamental to right as well, but they're, they're eventually going to make their way from Minnesota to La Jolla, California, outside of San Diego. Um, and I think this is really one of those pivotal moments for Wright because the American West, like how does he get to Taliesin West? I think this is where he really falls in love with the West and he's going to spend the rest of his career driving around the West. Um, uh, and cars are really important already for him. Yes, cars. He's, he's, he's been an early adopter for the car. Yes. And if we, one of the many things that we might chastise him for from the 21st century perspective is his sort of the ways that he radically orients us towards the automobile. Yeah. Uh, and he's, he's fanatical. I think it's speed, aerodynamics, all those things fascinate him eventually about cars. He always likes having cars. Yeah. And he, man, he has some good cars. I, I looked this up. He has some really good cars over his lifetime. Yeah, he um, absolutely had good cars and good pianos. And that's another thing. Yeah. Had. Yeah. Good. Right, right. Yeah. And, and I, I want to say just in passing, I'm not always sure he needed roads, which might have been part of the appeal of the West because there's a fabulous anecdote like, oh, let's he and the Taliesin fellows are, are driving um, and they're really it's dark and they're not really quite sure where they are. And they're like, OK, well, you know, let's just stop for the night. And they wake up the next morning and they're like 10 feet from the edge of the Grand Canyon. <laughs> like, they just gone 10 feet further <laughs> be over the edge. But of course, they couldn't see it because it was dark. So, um, you know, lots of good anecdotes, but, so, but and he yeah. loves and he loves the desert. I mean, which is for someone from an extraordinarily well watered corner of the United States. There's something of the desert as antithesis to the thesis of of Southwest Wisconsin. I think. Yeah, I, I that one I can't. I truly I cannot explain because I went out to Taliesin West and I'm driving in there and I'm thinking this really. Uh, I guess I'm not a desert person, um, but it spoke mm -hmm. to him very very much. And uh, Taliesin West, uh, which is outside of Phoenix, was intended to be sort of the the uh, the opposing pole to Taliesin East. Um, so they would spend their summers in Taliesin East and their winters at Taliesin West, and quite a bit of it that was about his health. His health was starting to decline. And that was also a sort of place of security far away from, from Miriam. And then it becomes, it becomes the center of this, this fellowship. Um, before we get to the depression, we should talk about right a little bit more. Um, and, uh, he is, he is a character. Let's put it that way. I mean, capital C. You quote someone, one of his clients said, Mr. Hup Wright would have impressed me far more had he not dressed like Albert Hubbard and had he not talked like a preacher. And I love that quote because no one knows who Albert Hubbard is anymore. But he is the Joel Osteen, you know, Tony Robbins, self-help guru of dies on the Lusitania. Um, he is extremely influential in popular culture in the first 14 years of the 20th century. Um and that's the way Wright talks. That's the way he dresses. Um, and you can see that he's born in 1867. Of course he talks like that. And I, you, you see pictures of him and it clicked for me when I read that. Up until 1959, he dressed like a bohemian of the 1890s. 
he and Oscar Wilde were contemporaries. They would have gotten along like houses of fire, you know. Um, that he's an Aubrey Beardsley kind of set. He's like it's the gay nineties always <laughs> in Wright's head. Yeah, um, yeah, he is a character, and I think that this is part of. Um, I, I, I mean, we would we would certainly uh, look askance at him if somebody showed up in a big poofy hat and a co- and a cloak. Um, and he drives. Yeah, he wears capes. He wears capes. And, he, um, and has a walking stick. And has a walking even stick. Even though he doesn't know one. Yep. And, and he'll, yeah. he'll poke at you with it. Yep. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, it's part of the persona. And it is, I, I think, a couple of things about it, right? First of all, he does come from that era. Like when he is building Falling Water and he builds a whole, almost, again, a third of his career when he's in his 60s and 70s and 80s. I mean, this is, he's, he's old. <laughs> and so he has those sort of grandfatherly affectations that we all love about, you know, about our grandparents, right? They just sort of live in a different era. Um, so there's certainly that. But also the whole point of leaving with Mema was to be able to live how he wanted to live. He wanted to be himself. He was very unapologetic about it. Um, and he just, he wanted to be who he was. And, and if you want to think about it in almost like a, like a coming out, if you will, um, he just, he, and he wasn't, he didn't, you, you don't like the capes? Eh, who, who cares, right? I'm comfortable. I'm good. Like, you know, it's really not about you. It's about me. Um, which is, you know, very understandable. He was a very arrogant man. It was a very understandable thing to do. So I, I want to, you know, yeah, he's, he's a, he's an acquired taste. He's a hard sell. He is definitely not the architect for everybody. Um, but, um, he is true to his ideals. Like he he wants he wants you to live how you want to live. He doesn't care how that is. Like yeah, he wants you I mean, to live he, how he wants to live. You have an anecdote early on about when a, a client calls him because his roof is leaking and it's pouring on his head just as, as he's sitting at the dining room table and Wright says, Hib, just move your chair. Right. Um this is this is right, the egotistical and sensitive stubborn autocrat. Uh but it's also the right this is right, I'm not going to build uh peaked roofs that drain. Right. Um, that's not who I am. Um, and you have to adapt yourself to my philosophy in order to live in one of my houses. This is the Albert Hubbard thing. He has a kind of uh, revivalist preacher philosophy. Um, and once you conform to that, then you can then you are able to live in a Frank Lloyd Wright house. Right. He is very quick to um, he, he wants you to live. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's contradictory, right? He wants you to live in your own way freely, right? He would never say to anybody, you know, you should marry that person or you should marry this person. He would never do that. Um, he would never say how you should live. And yet in his architecture, he kind of says how you should live, right? So he doesn't like, he doesn't really want you to bring your own furniture. He doesn't want you to have a lot of stuff. Um, you know, he's got a place for the car, but that's about it. Um, he wants you to live with a landscape. Um, and yeah, so, and some, some clients, oh my God, some clients adore it, right? Um, the Jacobs, uh, actually go back to him for a second house, uh, in that they, they build again, they decide they build a city, what is it, townhouse, they decide to move out to the country, they call him again and they do it all over again. And they really are the ideal clients for him because they did, um, actually cast a lot of the concrete themselves and then built a lot of the house themselves. That was, that was what he would have loved, right? Is the client in there. And he, he did when he's working with EJ Kaufman at Falling Water and Kaufman is prepared to roll up his sleeves and get in there with him. And, and Wright loved that. That's the perfect client. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and I just, my favorite story of one of his clients is, was it Lauren Pope, who was a copy editor or a typesetter at the Washington Post or the Star, I think it's the Post, and says, 
and he becomes obsessed with the right. And he has 5,500 bucks in 1938, 39. And he's like, I want a Frank Wright house. Will you build one for me? Oh, Lauren, of course I will. And he actually manages to stay more or less at budget, but Pope does a lot of the work himself. Um, this is, but this is in a way he is, he is one of Wright's ideal clients as well, because he, 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 this is the kind of person that he wished he had thousands of, you know, getting their hands dirty, building their own home, a Frank Lloyd Wright home. Yeah. Know, and living, and living according to that philosophy. Yeah. And you had to know how to manage Wright. And I, I think some of the best, uh, you know, the best clients were the ones who knew that they work, this wasn't going to work right off the bat. Like, um, Stanley Marcus, who was another department store magnet, commissions a house for him again, right in these, in these middle years. Um, it's something like 32, 33. Um, and the uh, the design that Wright gives him doesn't have any closets. Stanley Marcus is the co-owner of Neiman Marcus. It's a department store. He has clothing. That is exactly what he has. It is what he makes his business in. And Wright gives him a house that doesn't have any closets. And Marcus is like, what are you talking about? Like, and there's no way we can we can move forward with this. And they don't. Smartly, they don't. There were other issues with the design. But smartly, Marcus pulls the plug and goes with a different designer. And Wright ends up writing to him after he sees what this other designer has done. And he says, golly, Stanley, I didn't know you would settle for so little. Right? Like, it's, <laughs> oh, God, it's such a such a send down. Um yeah, I should have. Marcus should have gotten a house with Ionic columns. That would have really, right? Would really told him off. It's <laughs> closer um, to what he we, what he ends up with. We need to. We're like at, at well, almost an hour here, yeah. so we, I want to uh, at least get right back out of the valley of of despond. Yeah, um, and uh, and so amazingly enough, for a guy, we could do a whole other podcast on like the academic turn of architecture, um, and right. As you've gathered, not only is he a bad student, he would have been maybe one of the worst professors in the history of, of higher education. Uh, and yet, it's a series of lectures at, at Princeton that starts to bring him back, which is, there's, I don't, that's not irony, but there's something that going on there. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that the, and this is really one of the larger themes of, of the book is that, um, Architecture changes. The practice of architecture changes uh, uh, during the Depression, right? The whole nature of the field changes. So throughout mm -hmm. the 20s, Wright is building – he's just building weird stuff, the concrete block stuff. Um, he develops that all the way through the Arizona Biltmore. Um, he has a concrete block project on his desk when the stock market crashes. Um, mm -hmm. All sorts of other projects just haven't materialized. Um, it's just this sort of sad one, like, well, he doesn't build, you know, the fraternity house doesn't go forward. The automobile objective doesn't go forward. Like, it's just, that's the story of his life through the 20s. Um, uh, Olgavana um, stabilizes him. Miriam ultimately does. They manage to work things out with Miriam. Um, he goes bankrupt in the meantime, by the way, his, his people bail him out and they get him stable. And so about 1928 or so, um, uh, Olgavana is uh, stabilized him personally and professionally. His finances are in order. Miriam will will shortly pass away, and Olgavana's uh, pregnant. So things are really kind of looking up, right? He's got a few things on the drawing boards. Everything's going to be great, and the stock market crashes. And it just kind right. of like it's a, a good analogy is just you know you're building a sandcastle on the beach and it's too close to the water, and you just kind of the waves keep crashing over whatever he's built. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the, the, so the depression happens and the depression on architecture is, is the effect on architecture and the practice of architecture is, is, I mean, it just brings everything to a screeching halt. Well, 
as you write, there, I mean, there's at least three things. For one thing, the New Deal would physically and you say physically and dramatically alter the new American landscape through various relief programs, building sidewalks and roads and bridges and schools, and hospitals and high school football stadiums. Uh, the Depression also radically, quote, radically disrupted the process of making buildings as the available capital for building, developing and constructing projects dried up. And for many others, the Depression brought their careers to a close. Famous architects of the 1920s, Raymond Hood, Cass Gilbert, William Van Allen, John Russell Pope, simply faded away. Although Pope irritated lots of people by building the Jefferson Memorial because Franklin Wright liked ionic columns. I mean, I mean, sorry, Franklin Delano Roosevelt really liked ionic columns. Um, <laughs> uh, and so this is – so the Depression is a watershed for the, for the entire architectural – building pr profession. Uh, and one of Wright's secret is he just won't give up. Yeah. Other people, other people take it as a good, a, a, this is the moment to retire, but Wright is not a man for retiring. No, he's not. And, uh, you know, sheer, sheer grit and, and perseverance, I think are two other qualities is resilience, his perseverance and his just stuff. I just will his stick to witness. I don't know. Um, but yeah, yeah. You, you can say a lot of things about Wright. And I do think there's a lot of scholars that are quite hard on him. Um, I think there's a lot of scholars that are too easy on him, but um, mm -hmm. really what you cannot fault him for his persistence is inspiring it is it is his i mean resilience i've got a picture over my over my shoulder you can see ulysses s grant and i would i mean it's a strange uh, diptych uh right and ulysses s grant but there's both of them have this put your head down and ram through a wall persistence yeah and they are not going to give up Absolutely. And so I don't honestly, I just don't think that it occurs to write to give up. Like, I just no, think it just, no, he's, no, he's, he's the energizer bunny and he does have a tremendous amount of energy. I mean, I think you're right. You know, he designs a house for that's, um, uh, wing spread, the one you referenced about the leaky roof and just move your chair hip. Um, that's wing spread. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, wing spread is one of the ones I really just, I didn't like. I'm sorry if anybody likes that building. <laughs> I just, no offense is meant, but it just did not appeal to me. Um, and, uh, but he's, he's, you know, he's just not, he's going to do it his way. Um, and it just doesn't occur to him to not, to, just to stop. It just doesn't occur to him. So the depression happens. And, um, you know, again, the financing wipes out any number of projects that he's already he's had three or four on his, on his boards when the, the stock market crashes and the financing all goes away. And there's a few efforts to keep the, to keep looking for the financing, but by 1933, 34, um, uh, Albert Chandler in um, Arizona is one of them. Even Chandler gives up. And, um, but, you know, by this point, Wright has already, he's lived through the 20s. The 20s is the story of, you know, again, crashing, like financing falls through or people don't want to pursue it. Or so I mean, he's well familiar with this. And I honestly, I don't want to say that the depression doesn't bother him. It does. Like, uh, there's, you know, missives from Taliesin, like we're down to our last $30. It, things are really bleak here. Like it definitely touches him, but it also in some ways wasn't really anything new. Like he was plenty Co poor through the 20s. Compared to what he's already suffered through. Right. I mean, compared to what he suffered through when, uh, the, I mean, the murders and the fire, I mean, my goodness, this yeah. is, this is, this is bad, but I've seen worse is what he can say. Really? And personally worse. Like I think for him, it's like, okay, nobody has any money, but everybody's okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I, nobody's been no murdered or burned. Or, right? Yeah. Like, you know, my, yeah. my family is with me. Um, and the whole point of Taliesin was to live off the land. 
Um, so they're growing a lot of their own food. And this is another one where he is prepared to, you know, if he talks the talk, he's prepared to walk the walk. Um, and so, you know, there's a fabulous story of like, uh, the Taliesin fellows, and we didn't talk a little about this, but he, he, he founds the Taliesin fellowship and it's a school, um, for architects and it's centered at Taliesin. And, um, the idea was that the fellows would grow their, they'd work the farm, they'd grow their own food, they'd build their own buildings. And that this is the, this is the training that, that Wright is giving them. It's kind of life skills training that will parlay into an architecture career. Like you'll learn and how to build February, buildings. March, by, they're eating a lot of sauerkraut. They're eating a lot of sauerkraut by, cause that's what grows in Wisconsin and, and that's what's easily preserved. But you know, he was fine with it. Like, okay, bring on the sauerkraut, right? I grew it myself. It's all yeah. good. Um, so, you know, you really have to give him credit for all of that. Um, the opportunity for the Princeton lectures comes along. Uh, it is, he is actually recommended. He is not their first choice. He is really not even on their choice list. <laughs> um, their first choice is, is JJP Ood and Ood can't make it. And he recommends, right. Um, and I think everybody kind of at Princeton probably scratched their heads and said, eh, but you know what? He's probably cheap because <laughs> it was the depression. Um, and so they get him. Um, and he speaks. And uh, what the ultimate deal that they arrive at is six lectures and an exhibit. Um, and it's it's brilliant. It goes over beautifully. I mean, Wright is a magnetic speaker. He's speaking to young people. There's a ton of hero worship. Um, and it all starts to, to kind of spin back up again. So the exhibit uh, goes places. He arranges for it to, to go places, um, some of them internationally. Um, he uh, publishes the books, the lectures as a book. Um, and uh, the philosophy starts to get out there. Uh, something else that he's doing during the Depression that um, Ogavana starts him on is he wrote an autobiography while they are fleeing from the press. Um, he writes an autobiography and he's quite candid in it. Um, and uh, that's that turns into like almost a bestseller. So again, he's kind of practicing architecture without practicing architecture, right? And this is something he's yeah. he's been doing it for a decade and a half. So he's, he's preaching. He's I preaching. Mean, he's, he's he's leading. I mean, the the Princeton lectures are like uh, lectures on architecture disguised as a revival sermon, or the other way around. Right. You know, right. This is the the autobiography. It's interesting. You list them, and I, I did some research thanks to Professor Wikipedia <laughs> to find the number of people that were influenced by the autobiography. They took it really seriously. It was like their Bible. This was their new way of life. Yeah. This, and this leads to Kaufman's right. because, in many ways, it's by reading the autobiography that it's is it Edgar, Edgar Kaufman Jr., yeah. the son of the who uh, reads it, falls in whatever, um, and falls in awe of right becomes a fellow or talks writes letters and right finally discovers his perfect client the person who can stand up to him um but not break him or not push him away you know who's resilient and also who has a, also has a vision who saw Wright's vision, I think. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, the the path, I, I mean, goodness, again, it came as a surprise to me. Like, I just thought Edgar Kaufman called up Wright and said, let's design a house. Like, that is not at all what happened. That is not at all what happened. Um, initially, uh, E.J. Kaufman, and we should, for listeners, we should just clarify that there is a father and a son. So E.J. Mm -hmm. is the father and Edgar Jr. is the son, both conveniently named Edgar. Um, <laughs> but uh, E.J., uh, so E.J. runs Kaufman's department store in Pittsburgh. Um, and the department stores are one of the few things that are doing all right during the depression. He, it's, it's, it's kind of yeah, yeah, it's a little it's crazy. crazy it's, he's, yeah. he's not doing great guns. They were doing big business in the 1920s. Um, so EJ has money, but, uh, the department store, like any other, like they're, they're sort of clipping along, but they, they're surviving. 
Um, and it, again, I think it's not an accident that department store clients are the ones that are out there to get. So it's, it's so right talks to Kaufman, but again, uh, Stanley Marcus of Neiman Marcus is another one. Those are, those are the clients that are out there. Um, so EJ is off in Pittsburgh and, um, he owns this property out at Bear Run and it is actually a summer camp for his employees. It's not uh, a private estate. Um, uh, he's big in business. He too is trying to get things going after the depression. Um, and he, uh, stumbles upon, we haven't really talked about the new deal, but Franklin uh, Roosevelt has started the new deal. And the initial ask is that uh, Kaufman is going to, he gathers a group, he is part of a group of businessmen in Pittsburgh, and they're going to go after civil works authority money for a bridge and tunnel uh, project to redo the bridges and tunnels into Pittsburgh. That's great. Perfectly fine project. Um, And this is where things get a little bit murky, but so it's a bridge and tunnel and he wants to do a planetarium and he wants to redesign his office. Um, These are sort of the things that he's talking about. So he needs an architect. Meanwhile, his son, who is big into arts, um, who has just, he's been called back from Europe because he's, he's been studying with all these fabulous artists and um, practitioners in Europe. And his family calls him back ostensibly because they don't really have the money. Although I think they just wanted him close, but money was an issue, but you know, sort of gray area there. Um, but Edgar Jr. comes back and he has been reading the autobiography. And I think it must have been one of those sitting over the kitchen, the, the, or the dinner table, uh, moments where, um, you know, here is Edgar Jr. all excited about Frank Lloyd Wright and the father's got these projects and he says, okay, I'll reach out. Right. And then, and you sort of see it. I don't know if our, if your, if our listeners are parents, but, um, you certainly want to foster your child's ambitions and ideas. And so I think that that's really the connection. Um, and where I think the overlap was, was that was the planetarium, right? The, the Edgar, uh, EJ is talking about a planetarium. Edgar reads about the planetarium, right? Had designed a planetarium, one of the twenties projects that didn't go anywhere. Um, and he writes about it. It's, it's in the, um, print, the Princeton lectures. He talks about it. It's in the exhibit. He, he has drawings of it and it's in the autobiography. And I, I, it's, I think, I mean, there's not that many people with expertise, planetary design, planetarium design, but I think that, um, Edgar Jr. said, oh, you want a planetarium? Well, my hero here, he's designed a planetarium. So initial contact is made. And the ask is for Franklin Wright to design these bridges and tunnels. And just, you know, pause on that one for a second. Because, I mean, can you imagine, you know, imagine what he, if if Wright had had the opportunity to do that. Of course, that doesn't move forward, right? But imagine if Wright had designed the Brooklyn Bridge, right? (laughs) What, What would it look like? I mean, I would love to know. I would love to know. It would look great. Um, it would look I great. Can just, he would probably have been murdered by several construction foremen. Yeah. I mean, it would have been, you know, highly experimental and highly risky. And I really don't even know what he would have come up with for that. Yeah. Um, Tacoma does, Narrows Bridge also comes to mind. Yeah. Yeah. He does do, he has a couple of bridges, uh, you know, sort of deep in his past, but they're small, like over a ravine kind of a bridge, nothing major. Um, so that's the initial ask. And when Wright gets the letter, he's like, you must be joking. Like this, this is, this can't be true. Um, so he doesn't, he initially doesn't want to meet with, uh, with, uh, EJ, but he sends an emissary, a former Taliesin fellow who's in New York, goes out and sees EJ and writes back to Wright and says, no, this guy's legit. There's work here. I think we can make it work. And by the way, his son wants to join the fellowship. So everything sort of, you know, moves uh, very, very quickly. They're talking about, um, you know, there's a whole other part of this about um, an exposition in 1934 that Wright's going to do. EJ funds some of that. Um, His Broadacre City project is going to come out of that. Um, And then finally, after all of these things, right, the the bridges and tunnels, 
you know, right insults Pittsburgh <laughs> in the paper so that, you know, that suddenly he's no longer the architect for that. The, the planetarium design doesn't move forward. The office design, he does move forward with that. But finally, what's going to reemerge is uh, emerge from all of this is falling water. So Wright finally does go to Pittsburgh. EJ takes him out to Bear Run. Wright falls in love. But it's interesting because in this initial lead up, there's never a conversation about a house. Nobody's talking about a house. They're talking about kind of everything but a house. And so I think it was really that visit to Bear Run that that, that then, Wright very briefly because we're way we're way over time. Yeah, Wright goes back to Arizona, and he kind of, and Wright, there's a, and it's the legend is that he just puts it all together just in a burst of artistic inspiration. But really, as you lay out in the book, he's putting together things that he's been working on his entire life. The entire previous 25, 30 years go into falling water. Cantil- reinforced concrete experimentation, cantilevered floors, building over a creek, relationship to nature, all is there. I mean, it it all comes together in this house. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and EJ was absolutely the right client for right at this particular moment in time. Um, Right. So the story of the drawings, uh, it's it's actually at um, uh, Taliesin in Wisconsin. The story, yeah, the story goes that uh, the the, EJ does go out to Taliesin West. But um, Mm -hmm. the story is that EJ phones up and says, I'm going to be here in three hours um, and Wright says, okay, we're going to have some drawing. We have some drawings for you. But of course he didn't. Um, and he sits down and he starts drawing and he draws and he did the, the fellows are sharpening pencils and handing them to him. And, and they're all crowded around the desk and he's drawing and he's drawing and he's laying paper over, you know, tracing over and, and, and he comes up with these drawings of what's in his mind. Um, and EJ shows up at you know, three hours later and um, something like that. And they roll out the drawings and, it, and you know, EJ just, He's, he's, he's smitten. He's like, yeah, this is what we're going to do. Um, so, you know, everybody's like, oh, Frank, he right designed that in three hours. No, he drew it in three hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hate to burst bubbles. Um, but he, I think he'd really been thinking about it for a long time. I, I you know, those of you who are practiced at your crafts, um, probably, you know, you know, you're sort of thinking a little bit about it at, before you actually do it. I definitely kind of draft stuff in my head before I write it down. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what he's doing. I think he's designing in his head. Uh, I think he's he's working some models and he definitely pulls out all sorts of things that he's worked with in the past, right? The reinforced concrete, he's well experienced with that. Building over a waterfall, he's had other, there's a good five or six opportunities where he's experimented with that. Um, flow of space, use of natural materials. I mean, it's all stuff that he's check, done check, before. Check, check, yeah, yeah, all of it. But he pulls it together in a way that is uh, really entirely new. Um, and it's brilliant. I mean, the design is brilliant. The engineering and is it, brilliant. And EJ sees that. He sees it. And EJ cooperates with it. And so there's that great moment where there's a rock in front of the fireplace. Uh, and they're going to just, I guess, plane it down to become part of the floor. But EJ says, no, keep it there. And Wright loves that. I mean, it is, it's a very Wrightish mo- It's. I think Wright loves it because he realized, ah, yes, Edgar Kaufman now has accepted my philosophy. Yeah. You know, this is, this is, this is a victory in multiple ways, you know. It is. It is. Right. So EJ absolutely bought into the whole, the whole thing. And he's very much a contributor to the design. There's other parts of the mm-hmm. design where EJ really does uh, make some contributions. A, a good example is that they've got a rough cut stone wall and they're trying to fit the glass. Like, how do we cut the glass? to meet the wall and ej says don't just cut a channel in the walk and put the glass in that way would much much easier right um so he's a real contributor to the design but that does cut both ways right sometimes 
EJ meddles a little more uh, than he should. Um, for example, he does hire engineers to say, you know, what do you think? Is this going to stand? Um, and that really how pisses dare, Red. How, how dare, dare you? He? Yeah. This is part of the soap opera, The Battles of Bear Run, but we'll have to leave that for the book. Uh, one final question before we really have to wrap this up. Um, Falling Water, as I said in the intro, is one of the most iconic – I think in the top three most iconic houses, buildings in America. Um, does it have children? And did Wright have children? I know that only one of his students won the AIAA award. Now, that's you – know, there's we could – Quibble whether that's you know that's not exactly like winning an Oscar, um, it, it but it's sort it, it is the architectural Oscar but there, I mean it's not that much of a mark perhaps but it's still indicative that um, did Falling Water that we have someone who who is seen as the architect the American architect of the twentieth century I think in the American popular imagination insofar as the American popular imagination still thinks about architects debatable um, he would be the architect of the twentieth century. And yet, what did he leave behind? Does well, Falling Water have children? Does Wright have Does Wright have children? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a very good question. Um, so obviously, of course, he literally has children. Um, he has uh, <laughs> a son who goes into architecture, follows his footsteps into architecture, um, and does some very interesting things, uh, particularly in Los Angeles, including the Hollywood Bowl. Um, and his... Um, uh, his other son um, designs, I'm sorry, I think it's his other son, but it might still be John Lloyd Wright. Uh, no, it is John Lloyd Wright as opposed to Lloyd Wright, um, designs Lincoln Logs. So his children Gosh. do, um, you know, follow along a little in his footsteps. Um, he has uh, he, all the fellows. Um, I mean, the, the fellowship itself is interesting. Like, what, what does it mean to be trained as a Taliesin fellow? Um it wasn't really a formal education. You didn't like ever after four years, get your degree. Like you kind of left Taliesin when you felt you were ready and what you got was a recommendation from right or not. Right. Like it's a little, it's a little fluid. Um, so I don't know that it was really necessarily about uh, necessarily creating good architects, but there are a few out there. I wouldn't say that any, I mean, it's hard to achieve the level that he achieves. Um, there are a few out there, um, that, uh, you know, come out of the Taliesin workshops and, uh, do a few things. But again, you're correct that there isn't really anybody, you know, who, who reaches high echelons that I can think of. Um, there's certain, and again, there's yeah, a lot of I, weird I, stuff. Yeah. So. I mean, it, the reason why we talk a lot about an in intellectual history, I guess, about Socrates, Plato and Aristotle is that it's really damn unusual to have two people in line like that, let alone yeah. three. It's unheard of. So yeah. I guess I'm not looking for a Frank another a Frank Lloyd Wright part two. Um it's but it, it's I think I guess we would call it a movement or a, a style. I'm I, I don't I think that there are other this is an entirely separate conversation, but it is his his career concluded at a time, of course, we, we didn't talk about the MoMA exhibition. But when um, he was asked by prize creep Philip Johnson to um, exhibit the MoMA, there's a powerful European current that Wright is not receptive to and that will really direct American architecture over the next 50 years. Yeah. I mean, I think what I would say is in sort of the, the last thing I was going to say to answer your, your previous question is, um, does Falling Water have children? And I, I think that it, it doesn't because – 
Hmm. Wright was so terribly experimental um, in hmm. doing that. I think that 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 level of genius does not come along very often. But also, one of the things that just gets in the way is something you see very early in in, in Falling Water, which is the um, building codes would never allow that house to be built. Um, you can't. I mean, we we joke we joked earlier about the Freeman House doesn't have a foundation in the twenties. You could do that. Can't do that now. Um, so I, again, I think architecture changes, um, and so he doesn't have. He doesn't, you know, Falling Water doesn't have children because you don't practice architecture in the same way. And so genius in architecture appears to manifest differently. Um, so he's really his own thing. Um, he's the greatest, arguably the greatest architect of the 20th century. We're now in the 21st century. It'll be somebody different. Well, my takeaway from the hour and 15 minutes of conversation <laughs> is eliminate building codes. <laughs> <laughs> My guest today has been Catherine W. Zip. She's the author most recently of Frank Lloyd Wright's Falling Water. Catherine, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone. And I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 